Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, and I'm here with Dr. Evelyn Farkas, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, who was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense who handled Russia. She also has a lot of experience on WMD issues and is just returned from Israel, and we'll talk to her about all of those things. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, we have David Sanger, uh, who is enjoying the onset of the snowstorm up there. And here, somewhere beneath Alexandria, Virginia, we have Rosa Brooks, who says she's remodeling her basement. But listeners to Deep State Radio know that what she's probably doing is I'll building a bunker. A, <laughs> <laughs> a bunker with a wet bar. Okay. This is a strange thing, David. Um, years ago, a, a decade ago, when I first moved to the Alexandria area um, and was house hunting, one of the things that did strike me as I looked at all these houses was how many people had wet bars, which is obviously a thing um, here. And I, maybe somebody can explain, now that you're an Alexandria resident too, do you have a wet bar built into your house? Uh, no. I think but it's I like know, a 1980s thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really drink. So it's like a wet bar is like, you know, what, you know. I don't Hand know. sanitation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, look, another little sink, just what I needed. <laughs> All right. So, Evelyn, you yes. were just in the Middle East and, and have come back from Israel. And obviously it is much in the news today. And I'm just wondering how your trip colors your perspective on the recent news. Yeah. So first of all, we were there last week. I was with a, a Israeli government-funded delegation, educational, senior, former policymakers from both sides of the aisle, um, five men, two women. Don't you think educating senior policymakers after they've left office is too late? Uh, no, because they think that we're not going to die and maybe we'll still be we'll influential around town or maybe we'll go back and work in government again. I don't know. You'll have to ask them. But nevertheless, while we were there, the issue of Jerusalem and the embassy did not come up in any major way. And, and nobody really forecast to us that there was a decision coming. Now, granted, from the U.S. side, our meeting, we had very few U.S. meetings and the only person we met, the most senior person, was the consul general in, in Jerusalem. And I guess he's probably very... He is a civil servant, so he's pretty well trained not to <laughs> give away secrets like that. Um, but what we did hear about, we heard a lot about the fact that they were counting, they being the Israelis, were counting on the one opportunity, which was that Jared Kushner and the Trump administration could basically open the door publicly to the existing relationship between Israel and the Arab states, in particular the Gulf states. And so that through the diplomacy with the Saudi uh, crown prince – 
they they could actually bring into the public so that the Arab public could see that actually more or less now the big Arab states accept Israel as a reality. So that was the positive thing. The negative thing, though, was that the Israelis kept talking about how they were counting on the Trump administration to get the Russians to get the Iranians to respect Israeli red lines, meaning the Israelis had said very clearly to the Iranians, well, to the Syrian government, to Assad and to the Russians that they will not accept any permanent Iranian forces in Syria after the war is over. And also they will not accept any further encroachment closer to Israeli borders or any kind of buildup in, in capability, military capability. So those two things we know the this current administration, the Trump administration, has no leverage to actually help the Israelis with. So, and the Israelis were very clear that if their their red lines were not respected, they were going to do something about it. Meaning they would have to use military force. So and, I came away worried. Russia. Yes. So I came away worried. I came away actually somewhat reassured on the peace process front because I thought, well, maybe there'll be some very slow thawing. There's not going to be any breakthrough. Nobody expected it. And we and we were made to understand that neither the Israeli Arabs or the Israeli Jews expected any real change with regard to peace, the peace process. But on the Syria front, that's where I came away worried. Now I'm actually worried on both fronts. Well, sounds like a very successful trip. And thanks, <laughs> educational. <laughs> thanks, government of Israel yeah, for the trip. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, David, you know, as we, you know, th- think about all of this, one thing that strikes me is that the Israelis um, are counting on their, you know, the special relationship between Bibi and Trump, and especially the special relationship between Jared and Bibi about, you know, well, we can get this thing and this is going to be a big um, breakthrough. And Jared and Trump are close to the Saudis. And so the Saudis are probably cool with all of this. But when I talk to people from the Gulf, they're like, oh, no, Mohammed bin Salman did not give the green light for this. Mohammed bin Salman is not happy about this. The Gulf states are not happy about this. And Jared is not the mastermind who's finally, you know, the architect of a rapprochement. And both sides look like they may come out burned from buying into the Trump-Jared line. What's your perspective? Well, I think that could well um, happen. I mean, it's been such a, a bizarre week. I mean, if you start, if you just start with the the Palestinian um, uh, reactions that were entirely predictable to the announcement on uh, moving uh, the embassy to um, to Jerusalem, you know, this is the classic thing that happens when you let your domestic politics drive your foreign poli- your foreign policy decision making, right? So. The president basically decided he had to go complete a campaign promise, and he's looking around at the cheers he's getting from Sheldon Adelson and from uh, some of the Jewish groups in the U.S., but clearly not all, and then from Bibi, and he thinks, oh, wow, this must be a real Mideast policy out here. And, you know, I think we were all sort of stunned from uh, last Sunday forward, as uh, Jared Kushner and others sort of seem to make the case that everybody will get used to this and we'll just sort of move on with the rest of our plan, which, as you suggest, has a Saudi element to it, has the Arab-Israeli um, uh, peace negotiations element to it, in what the Trump administration thinks is a grand scheme of how this all interrelates. I don't think the Arab world looks at it that way. 
Rosa, if you were sitting with Bibi or I, I wouldn't M- or 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 MBS. Well, a couple of weeks ago, you said you sat with the Queen and you really sort of that, gave her a hard time. Which um, <laughs> Queen? The, the, um, the one Queen of England. The one, oh, you know, the Queen the of England. Only. Who else did you think? I don't know. The Queen Beatrix or something. Que- yeah. <laughs> Queen Beatrix. Wow. Um, but no, I, w- I would not. Let's we can establish quickly. I would not be sitting with BB. Okay. Well, this is a hypothetical. You get that, right? Okay. All right. Okay. And so there's this hypothetical and you're sitting with BB or you're sitting with Mohammed bin Salman and they go, don't you worry about a thing. I got time. Trump and Jared. Now, what would you say to them in those circumstances? Uh, <laughs> I would say it is a slender reed upon yeah. which you rest your hopes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. I mean, Very formal. And, yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 I don't actually think that they have that they are dumb enough to have any confidence whatsoever in either Trump or Jared. Uh, uh, I think that they are taking advantage of of the general idiocy of current U.S. foreign policy to achieve their their near term ends, and obviously BB is is happy as a clam. Although I never was sure why we thought clams were happy, um, but yeah, Rosa, happy. Yes. why do you think? Because they why don't do negotiate Middle East peace, Rosa? Okay, let's <laughs> let's let's just take a break here. Why do you think clams are happy? They have a smile. So, it's like a smile. Their right? whole face looks well, like a smile. It's yeah, like a big curve. Yeah. Even I knew that. I don't yeah, know how. I just didn't even know I knew like that. Oh gosh. That to you, That's everybody. Nice. That is why you wear the heavy crown of the entropy. Diet of a doom. That's um, a, <laughs> maybe she thinks only if you're showing your teeth are you happy. Yeah. Mm. Well, and and think of the oysters whose fate it didn't turn out well in the in the epic poem. Um so anyway, but but no, I, I, I think that I think that obviously the Israeli right is delighted and Netanyahu is delighted by this and this is, you know, Obama was viewed as a major, major roadblock. They couldn't stand him uh, because he said really some rather mild things, critical, uh, of, uh, critical of the Israeli right and critical of the expansion of the settlements and so on and so forth. Um, well, I now, think, they've I, got, I, I think... now they've got somebody who will, who will happily do whatever they say. Um, I mean, to talk about unholy alliances, uh, I've also never really fully understood the unholy alliances between right-wing American Christians and right-wing Israelis. But but obviously that's part of this too. So I don't think they they imagine for a moment that that the ascendancy of Jared Kushner or Donald Trump is likely to be enduring. I think it's the opposite. I think that they know full well that this isn't going to last. But if they can try to kind of lock in uh, some advantages while these idiots are here, they're, of course, they're going to do that. Yeah, no, no. There's a whole kind of hold my beer contest going on where somebody says, oh, I just took advantage of Trump in the biggest possible way. And the next guy goes, well, hold my beer. And then they go and they try to do it in an even bigger way. But, you know, one of the things that was said in all of this was that the uh, evangelicals were doing this hard push to Trump to go and get him to make this decision. And of course, you know, I, for one, always find this a little bit odd as the Israelis jump in it. But, you know, the whole evangelical notion is that, you know, the, 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 you know, the beautiful moment comes and everybody is redeemed um, because um, uh, of the changes that they want to see in the Holy Land. And then the Jews are left behind and they go to hell. You know, I mean, it's like... That's the part that, is, I, that makes but, it a little bit difficult to see why. But I, I, I'm not sure I would pin this mind. one 
<laughs> Sorry to interrupt. I'm not sure I would pin this one necessarily on the evangelicals because it seems to me, at least from what I wrote, and, and, and it's logical that Sheldon Adelson, the biggest funder or one of the biggest funders of, of Trump who is for this measure – was was in part motivating him to do it, but 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 well, then it's both groups. It's it's, yeah. it's 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 an alliance, and that's what I'm saying is they think they're pulling in the same direction, but that's not the evangelical plan. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> they'll be saying goodbye, Jews. We're off to heaven. Yeah, See no, ya. there's going to be like the rapture, and they're and and then the Jews will be all down here going, who do we sell the corned beef to? I mean, you know, it's going to be a problem. And then for Trump, I don't think it's it's religion at all. It's just like he wants to get something on that list. Well, I, no, but I think that's the the other thing is, and this is what I was going to turn to you and ask. Th- there's no strategy here. I mean, this is a blunt instrument in search of a strategy. This was a policy, and if you said, "Well, this is part of my master plan," people might go, "Oh, okay, explain your master plan." But there's no master plan. It seemed like Trump, as happens all the time these days, is trying to distract. He's trying to distract from an ever worsening situation on the Mueller Russia front. And the set, well, you see that? But but um, this is a professional podcast, such as these things are. But, but you know, you have this image that Trump— Good news. That, <laughs> another county heard from. But, but you, you know, you have this image that Mueller is constantly, like, sitting on his shoulder, going, I'm over here. I'm over here. I'm not going away. And he's, like, trying to shout at the top of his lungs to dr- drown it out. This past I actually we- think you're tr- you're giving him too much credit, David. I don't I don't even think Trump is strategic enough to think to himself, "Oh, I need to distract everybody from Mueller." I think Trump. I I think it is so much closer to pure randomness than that. Well, I think it's a you you might be right, but I would add to that if you're right, then it's emotional. That's interesting. But Trump is a random policy generator. That's a kind of a new yes. thing. No, that, that's <laughs> right. I, I yeah, I think that there's sort of a limited number of settings. And there's this little dial that spins around and, you know, it, it, it can land only on a limited number of settings, right? Because it's sort of pre-programmed. Um, uh, but, but I don't actually think where it lands or, or even when it spins and whether it spins has anything to do with Mueller or anything else. Right. And then it's just yeah, I mean, I think this one, this one was, a, was a particularly pre-programmed one because there's a list of things that he promised during the campaign that we kind of rolled our eyes and said, well, you know, when you get into office, you don't, you recognize the complications of this and you don't do it. A Paris Accord was one of those and he did it. And moving the embassy to Jerusalem and decertifying the Iran deal were two others. Now in the decertifying the Iran deal part, his staff found a way to sort of split the baby and make it sound like he was doing something dramatic without doing something dramatic in moving the embassy It'll be interesting to see if the same thing happens. You could imagine the bureaucracy slow walking this and saying mm-hmm. we can't find a secure enough spot. Oh yeah, we don't have the right architect. Well, it's right. al- it's already yeah, happened. Right. It's 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 already happened to some degree because the State right. Department the cut thirty percent. We don't have room to dig the foundation. I mean, you can you can hear all that. We might actually dig into the. Well, actually, now. actually, I, I don't mean to correct you on this point, but actually, the embassy is built. It's actually there in Jerusalem. There's a building they could move you're, you're into. You're talking about you're talking about the yes, and that was intended initially as a consulate. Actually. Right, but they, but, but they but he there is an office they could move into it. However, yeah, the state they could dep- do it. They could have done it an hour after he made the announcement. The fact that they didn't pick the ambassador up, drive him over from, from Tel Aviv, and put him in that building, which is 
you know, just around the corner from the King David Hotel tells you something. Well, this and, was all about symbolism. Well, and I, and, I, and I would say there are two other things that tell you it was about the symbolism. One is that he signed the six-month waiver again immediately after doing this. So he, he punted it down the road just as every other president has been doing for a couple of decades. But the other thing um, was that the State Department, which opposed this decision, announced that they would not be treating people who were born in Jerusalem as being born in Israel yet. Um, you know, which is, you know, if, if, if Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, then presumably if you're born in Jerusalem, you're born in Israel. But, you know, we're, they're going to stick to their old um, ways of, of describing Jerusalem as an entity unto itself. Well, this then reminds me of the random tweet, which, which really may have been, because uh, I don't think it's, I think it's a mixture of emotional, the emotional and rational come together in as much as he knows rationally he has to deflect attention. He's also emotional because there's something getting at him um, or getting to him. Um, and so Trump usually will tweet or in this case he made an, an executive decision. But <laughs> the, it reminds me very much of that tweet where he said, OK, we're no longer going to allow um, – what was it, transgender um, personnel to serve in the military. So, but then, of course, that was just a, twi- a tweet, <laughs> which is handled, I guess, like an exec- like a statement from the executive, from the president, but nobody took any action based on it. Well, no, state and DOD do not tend to do, to do that. Now, one thing that strikes me as kind of interesting here, and I'd, I would like to use this as the segue, which the last one failed, but I'm going to try again. <laughs> But um, is that, uh, you know, like, for example, the Israelis are counting on Trump because of some perception that he's got some relationship with the Russians to get the Russians to get the Iranians to pull back. Um, But of course, so far, everything that he's done has been accommodating the Russians and the Russians have been all too eager to accommodate the Iranians. Right. And that's how you have this kind of Russian-Iranian arc of influence now over the entire northern part of the Middle East. And this brings me to another question, which I'd like to go around the table on and start with you again, Evelyn, which is, you know, we talk a lot about the bad Russia um, uh, problem the president has with regard to the election. And of course, in the past couple of days, it's gotten worse and worse. And, you know, now there's stories about, you know, more stories than, than there well, were. More Russian approaches, Russian which were approaches and, perhaps taken, perhaps not. Right, exactly. Um, having said that, let's pretend none of that happened. How would you be evaluating the Russia policy of the Trump administration at this point? That is a very good question because in reality, it hasn't changed all that much from the Obama administration Russia policy. And in fact, I've made the argument to people like Kurt Volker, who's who's in charge. He's the envoy to Ukraine um, and, and other friends of mine who were working in this administration that they could actually have a better – they could have Obama plus if they approved the lethal assistance to Ukraine that President Obama was not willing to approve. But in essence, I mean, we, we continue to you know, harp on the Russians verbally about their INF violations. Now, that's the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that bans nuclear nuclear weapons, which can essentially reach from Russia to the rest of Europe and vice versa. So we have not fielded any in Europe anymore. Um, that's back going back to the Reagan era where the treaty was signed that removed them essentially from any future battlefield. 
But the Russians now, of course, we know that they violated the agreement by producing, by developing a new intermediate uh, for f- intermediate range nuclear weapon and possibly fielding it, though I don't I don't know what has been said about that publicly. The 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 issue now is we're still in the same place we were with the Obama administration on that front. We haven't really made any real progress, although it sounds like maybe this administration is now ready to take some action to try to get the Russians back into compliance. But still, it looks the same. On the Ukraine front, again, as I mentioned, it's the same policy. On Syria, roughly the same, although I would say removing some of the assistance that we were giving the moderate opposition forces. I'm, I'm actually a little bit unclear as to how much has actually been removed because we said we were not going to give the Kurdish forces, the YPG in Syria, military assistance. And Trump's gone back and forth on that. Now it seems like we are giving it to them, but we're looking more carefully at what kinds we're giving them. So uh, bottom line, uh, that's a long way of saying to you, David, I don't think very much has changed unless I'm missing something. Um, right. Can but- I suggest one thing that may have changed, David? Please do. And and that is any leadership from the president in defining what our strategic objectives are in dealing with Russia. So I would agree completely with Evelyn that, you know, when I travel with Tillerson to Moscow earlier this year, he beat up on them for the same things from human rights to the INF treaty to election meddling. You hear it all from Mattis for sure in Evelyn's old shop. But what you don't hear is the President of the United States talking about either where specifically he wants to take the relationship or any criticism of Putin for his continued uh, activities in Ukraine, for the cyber activities, for the uh, bombers and the submarines running off of Europe, for the I have never heard him speak publicly on the INF issue. And if you don't have that coming from the top, then all you have in the bureaucracy is a lot of churning where they sort of stay on autopilot from the last administration. And why is this? Because you had an administration that came in, we now know, with Michael Flynn thinking that the first thing he would do would be to lift sanctions. Well, obviously, in this political environment, they can't do that. So they're kind of stuck. If the president's got a vision of where he wants to take it, his initial plan of how to do this, which was to get out from underneath the sanctions the U.S. and its allies have put on, on Russia, isn't going to happen. And so I would say it's, it's a, kind of a, a um, motorboat whose, whose motor is hard over and it's just going in circles right now. Uh, the, I, I was just thinking of the, a little game I used to play with my children when they were little in the beach and at the pool, David, where you pick them up and you spin them around in a circle saying, motorboat, motorboat, go so slow, uh, go so fast and gradually speed up. And then you step on the gas and you throw the children up into the air and they practically drown. And then they're not that happy with you anymore. But um, and it's very similar. Um, wow. And, and in fact, <laughs> hello, <laughs> hello, Children's alive. Protective Services. Alive. And weirdly, they would keep asking to do this over and over again, even though every time they end up spluttering with water up their nose. Um, and that indeed is pretty much where the U.S. is likely to get. See, this metaphor is going somewhere. With water up its nose. Yeah. With water up its nose. Uh, dizzy, <laughs> disoriented, and with water up its nose. Um, but but I think part of the dilemma here is something we've talked about before. It doesn't, 
you can't really speak of a Trump administration foreign policy. The Trump administration has multiple competing foreign policies within it. You know, so we have on the one hand, we have the Pentagon, for instance, pursuing the same policies towards Russia that the Obama administration was pursuing, which is to say regarding Russia as essentially adversarial to U.S. interests. Uh, and in, in numerous ways, um, whether it comes to thinking about NATO or comes to thinking about uh, preparing for hybrid war, you know, we just launched some kind of new hybrid warfare center sort of explicitly to counter Russian activity um, just last month. Um, you know, so, so the, the Defense Department is continues to chug along treating Russia as an adversary. Um, you know, Trump continues to chug along treating Putin as his best friend and his role model. Uh, and what, what you get when you have multiple competing foreign policies, uh, particularly when the competing one, one of the competing ones is the president, it's just, and it is at odds with the foreign policy of his own Defense Department, for instance, uh, you know, is you end up with, with a whole lot of nothing or otherwise known as water up your nose. Well, wow. Uh, nicely tied back there, uh, Rosa. Appreciate that. But, you know, I, I think this is one of those instances where I would say, Evelyn, David, and Rosa, you're exactly right. In other words, there are elements that are the same. The big difference is the president. The president's body language, you know, Obama would be critical, had a bad relationship with Putin for good reason. Trump never says a bad word about Putin. And of course, that has an implication for the foreign policy. And at the end of the day, what you end up with is the State Department and the Defense Department carrying forward essentially the policies of the past, but knowing full well that the president is likely to undercut those policies. And so I don't think Barack Obama would have failed to implement the sanctions voted by the Congress. Um, I, I think Trump would have and did, right? So that's a big distinction. And I think the Russians continue to think, and they must think it's a miracle because of how many good reasons there are for Barack for Donald Trump to show some kind of toughness with Russia, that he just won't do it. And, you know, Trump does say the policy— Well, or they know something we don't know, David. Right. Well, or both. But, you know, and, and, and they just sort of say the policy stops— with him, he keeps saying that apparently is the case, um, and that ends up in a in a very very different place. David, I, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about that INF um, uh, 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 treaty issue, which the Russians have not been adhering to for a long time, and yet there is some discussion about uh, you know. Uh, 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 you know, re renegotiating or, or altering the treaty. And I was just wondering where you think that stood and why, if at all, you think it's significant. Oh, if we were in normal times where we weren't sitting around talking about the Russians meddling in the election, being on social media, doing all the other things they've been doing, and we were back in, like, rethinking what the post-Cold War means, the INF Treaty would be a big deal because this is a treaty that kept um, both countries from deploying intermediate-range uh, nuclear weapons that, uh, as you heard before from Evelyn, could threaten uh, Europe. The uh, evidence is pretty overwhelming that the uh, Russians have been in violation of this. They're betting that the Trump administration will not try to pull out of the treaty uh, because um, there are many in the administration who argue that we're better off actually complying with its terms and then trying to pressure others to do so. But um, 
it's not at all clear to me how that will go play out. But what is important here is that there's a the possibility of an entirely new nuclear arms race that has nothing to do with the big ballistic missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles that we're used to restricting, because the capabilities of these smaller, lighter, um, medium-range missiles have so increased in recent times that you can accomplish a lot of the... um, of the tasks that you previously would have to use an ICBM for. And so this is actually a possibility of a significant dangerous outbreak in sort of a new arms race, even if we kept to um, the new START treaty that President Obama and Putin signed in 2010. Well, let me me explore one more element of Russia policy that we don't normally talk about, Evelyn, then I want to turn to you, Rosa. You know, there's stories on The Wire that Mueller has just acquired 100,000 pages of Paul Manafort's financial records and and Gates's financial records, um, which leads to some bigger discussions about the financial um, paper trails that they'll be following, whether they go through Cyprus or whether they go through Deutsche Bank or through other places. And I'm sure David Sanger right now is sitting in an office surrounded by giant stacks of paper and thumb drives going through this kind of thing himself. But, you know, it it suggests that one other government and one other power structure is likely to be rocked by this investigation. And that is the Russian power structure. And in the middle of Vladimir Putin, who, you know, one of the stories this week was Vladimir Putin announced his candidacy for re-election in his non-democracy. But that in the midst of his election year, there are going to be handfuls, dozens, hosts of people in the Russian power structure who were revealed to be funneling money to um, people in the U.S. or working for the government. And they're going to all, you know, inevitably somebody's going to say, well, let's sanction them. And all of a sudden you're going to have a whole sort of policy dialogue around the financial side of how the Putin government works that may be super uncomfortable for Putin. Am I wrong about this? Um, I would venture to say you might be overestimating that um, because, you know, Putin experienced personally, he and his inner circle experienced the Panama Papers. So the team of investigative journalists who went in to the offshore uh, to the to the big firm in Panama that was helping people set up offshore accounts, and they found a lot of information that incriminated Putin, and and the well, and and he was able to weather it by basically pointing a finger and saying that's a Western conspiracy, and those guys set me up basically more or less. I don't know how there was more about Russia in the more recent ones, the Paradise Papers. Again, he seems to have weathered that. However. If something new, really new comes out or something that touches – it's hard to say what it would be that would really touch a nerve with the Russian people. There is a nerve to be touched because we saw – and this may have been to some extent affected by these papers that have been revealed by the journalistic work, the excellent investigative journalists. We saw Russians go to the street and demonstrate earlier this year 
at the urging of Navalny, Alexei Navalny, who is the opposition leader who wants to run against Putin. Now, there's another person running against Putin. We'll leave that to the side for the moment. Um, people see that as more or less the, the Kremlin's choice for an opposition candidate. But the real opposition candidate would be this guy Navalny. And what he's made his name on is these kind of exposés exposing corruption. And the latest one that he did was on Medvedev and all of his houses and all of his sneakers. And, you know, he apparently spends exorbitant money on a ridiculous amount of shoe comfortable shoe wear and we all <laughs> yes and so and so he so Navalny published his paper and then he called for people to go to the streets and the other interesting thing was that he organized it not just in the normal places Moscow and St Petersburg but he involved a lot of other cities you know in the in in other parts of Russia and that was interesting and also that you had the youth coming out, the youth who don't do not remember eating a potato a day, you know, in the past like their grandparents, the youth who have been raised in this, a in this atmosphere where they believe they're entitled to have a good economic standard of living that should not go down as it has been lately, um, who are angered by corruption among the elite. So there is a nerve, getting back to my original answer, there is a nerve to be – to be irritated, but I'm not sure whether it will be sufficient to bring major change. Look, when Putin goes, when he and his cronies go, it will be sudden. We will not be able to predict it. Well, I'm, I'm and I'm, I wasn't even getting at that kind of change from the grassroots. I was essentially saying Mueller is going to have to lay out a case, and he's going to have to say this money went from this person to this person to this person. And first of all, it's going to reveal how they work. And secondly, it's going to call out a bunch of people. And thirdly, it's going to force somebody in the Congress to say, Magnitsky plus, we are going to go after all of these people in addition to those people, and and the squeeze is going to get worse, not better. Okay, so I know the others want to jump in on this. I'll just say where maybe it will reverberate when you say another country, I wasn't thinking Russia, somewhere else in Europe. So Ukraine, clearly, but maybe elsewhere in Europe where some of these people have been active, Germany, for example. Okay. Uh, Rosa, is it really true that comfortable shoes are so important to you that in your basement you're building like a whole croc room, that it's just crocs? Uh, David, I, I can't tell you what I'm building in my basement. Bir Bir <laughs> Next Birkenstock, to the, the Birkenstock room. <laughs> Think uh, silo, David. Think silo. No, no, I'm I'm thinking silo. Believe me, everybody in her neighborhood thinks she's adding a wet bar, and they don't know why it goes down twelve stories below the surface of Alexandria, Virginia. Um, but as as we look at Mueller and the developments this week, one of the ones, Rosa, that came up that I just couldn't help but seek your your perspective on was that Donald Trump Jr. asserted that he did not have to reveal the contents of his conversation with his father um, because of attorney-client privilege, because there were apparently attorneys nearby. Now, as the associate, associate, well, and when you're in Washington, there are always attorneys nearby. Well, that's the beauty of the whole thing. The entire city, under that theory of attorney-client privilege, the entire city is covered by it. Well, exactly. And I was just wondering, do you think this is a real legal contribution by Don Jr.? Well, it's one of many major contributions by Don Jr. <laughs> um, no, I mean it's we don't we don't. I mean, obviously, there are circumstances in which attorney-client privilege might apply if, if, in fact, both Donald Trump Jr. and his father were being jointly represented by the same attorneys and were having a discussion with that attorney. Um, but, but typically, you know, when you are, if I if I am recalling my 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 rules correctly, um, 
you you waive attorney-client privilege if you're talking to your lawyer and then you invite some random person into the room, including a random person who happens to be a relative, you know, that there's no special privilege for for a parent and a grown child. Um, so that actually would tend to, in, or, you know, barring some truly weird joint representation that would tend to waive any attorney-client privilege that might otherwise exist. Uh, so it, it's not a claim that on its face seems like it makes any sense. It's not completely impossible that there were weird circumstances that would make it true, but it's pretty bizarre and unlikely, at least as, as, as we've seen it reported on. Well, it certainly covered up for a great deal of forgetfulness, apparently, on his part, and he was unable to recall a lot, and, and so we're going to have to wait for the next shoe to drop on this. David, one of the things that I'm hearing around Washington, and and I'm, by the way, I, I hear this, and then I dismiss it out of hand because it doesn't fit with my narrative, um, which is that, in my view, it's in no one's interest to go to war with North Korea. But I keep seeing stories that say people in the administration, people close to the administration are, you know, I saw one today, are making arguments like they did before Iran. And that, that you know, that there is this push that it's it's okay, we can figure out a way to make this work. And I'm just wondering, because you've been covering this for a long, long time, um, how, how you, how, what you're hearing right now. So what you're hearing is uh, people like General McMaster talking about the conditions under which preventive war, not even preemptive war, preventive war, might be necessary if diplomacy fails. Um, At the same time, we're not seeing the kinds of things that you would have to see to prepare for such a war. In the run-up to Iraq, pardon me, we saw troops moving, people getting in place, people getting evacuated. There's been none of that so far. Well, there was. So there... Then the question, no, go on. Then the question that comes up is, are we hearing this because they want to convince the Chinese that President Trump is serious about this and he will not live with a, a with a Korea that could, North Korea that could reach any city in the United States with a nuclear weapon? Or is he really actually preparing to go do it? And the answer is that to be convincing, you have to be preparing to really go do it because the Chinese and others will sniff out a fake effort with ease. Um, Do I think it's imminent? No. Um, Do I think they've been taken by surprise this year by the pace at which the North Koreans have improved their missile capability? Absolutely. And if anything drives us in that direct in the direction uh, toward conflict, it may well be that um, there really is no <clears throat> diplomatic movement on the part of the North Koreans at all, and that President Trump gets uh, trapped by his own declaration that he's going to solve this problem rather than do what every other president has done, which is live with it and kick elements of it down the road. Would Would you say that this is a big intelligence failure on the part of the U.S.? I would certainly say that as a matter of tactical intelligence, in other words, when all this was going to happen, I think it was probably a pretty significant failure. We've all known that they're building up their missile capability, but the speed with which they've done it um, and the speed at which they set off what appears to have been either a thermonuclear weapon or a pretty close um, equivalent to one has truly been surprising to a lot of people. So but, when David, you know, said- we, we only think of, of intelligence uh, failures 
in the reverse, the Iraq kind, where we predict something that isn't happening, the far more familiar kind in the nuclear world is that you underestimate how close a country is getting. That's what we did with the Soviets in 49, the Chinese in the 60s, and the Indians and the Pakistanis. So, Evelyn, when David a moment ago referred to the officials from past governments that have kicked the can down the road, you were one of them, weren't you? Well, I, was, I did not hold the North Korea brief when I was uh, in the Obama administration. No, I had enough but, trouble. But everyone was picking other camps down. No, no, but, but I'm just saying, you've, you've worked this work issue in past Korea. administrations. When I worked right. for the Senate Armed Services Committee for seven years, I covered North Korea intensely. I read every NIE, National Intelligence Estimate, you know, wrote them up and summarized our, our them. Our nerds know that stuff, y- by yes, the way. sorry. The, our listeners know what an NIE <laughs> I is. I went there in 2008 when we had a, a thaw, when we had them kind of negotiating at one point. And then I continue with the WMD Commission. So you've been following these so issues. Been and concerned. you've been involved in yes. the U.S. government, which has been sort of essentially a, a – following the all-means-short-of-war approach, which is let's yeah. do everything that we can Buy to time. stop this, slow this. Um, and and indeed, that may still be the wisest approach that is, a, is available to us. Um, do you Does this feel materially different to you than when you were working the issue? I think what feels different to me is Kim Jong-un, the new young leader, he has decided that he's going to go at breakneck speed to get this capability. And by the way, if you talk to the real kind of missileers, the real missile engineers, experts, they say, we know that the missile can reach the United States with a dummy on it, with a decoy, but we haven't seen them test, you know, and prove that they can actually mate the missile with a nuclear weapon and that that would get to the U.S. Not that I'm baiting Although them it to does, do that. Although it does seem like it's got quite the payload capability, this latest it, test. Again, but the, but the test did not have the full weight of a warhead on it. So there, so there are those. I just have to kind of put that out there. Not that I, I know. I'm not reading the current intelligence. I don't know. And these are people who are not in the government who are commenting. So they're essentially saying we have a little more time. We may even have as much as a year. It doesn't matter. The point is that, that Kim Jong-un has made up his mind that he is not going to negotiate until he has this capability. And then he's going to negotiate. Some people are speculating in the press, and maybe that's what they're hearing inside the administration from the intelligence community, that he's going to try to negotiate a reunification with South Korea. You know, that seems to me rather um, far-fetched only because it's just not feasible. But second, you know, he could negotiate essentially a hard status quo. So we have just an armistice in place right now. He can say, I want a peace treaty and I want something that recognizes, you know, my state until unification and my government and no regime change. And I want all these guarantees. In essence, he'll have some kind of guarantee anyway because he'll have a deterrent capability that's not only conventional but nuclear. I I don't really know that it gives him that much more than what he had when he had the conventional because he can still threaten South Korea and by extension the United States and Japan. But it is disconcerting because he clearly is showing to us that he's not interested in negotiating until he gets to that place where he has a full-on program. And then we have to essentially accept it and come up with a new new, mutual assured destruction vis-a-vis North Korea. Well, it'll probably be the same mutually assured destruction, but but you know, I get I get your point. Um, and for the final thing here, before we we, we do a brief uh, one thing on that, David, the North Koreans can do a lot of things, but they can't destroy. They don't have enough missiles and the reach for MAD to work. We could destroy all of them. They can't destroy all of us. But they right. can use their weapon for all kinds of blackmail purposes. And the biggest concern we have 
if they were going to collapse, which you could easily imagine, and you have that number of loose nuclear weapons, at which point deterrence doesn't help you at all because you don't know who's shooting one off in desperation. Well, also, there's 300,000 Americans in South Korea. They certainly could do yeah. a lot of damage to South Korea. And, and, and of course, and of course, the, the South Koreans can't have been too happy this past week when our ambassador to the United Nations, the rational Nikki Haley, um, said, well, maybe we shouldn't send an Olympic team to Korea oh because, you know, the situation may be too dangerous. And you can just imagine the 300,000 Americans who live there um, going, great. And, and, the, and, the, and the South Korean stock market. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, that's really terrific. Rosa, I would like you to read some tea leaves for us before we uh, wrap this episode up or, or do some interpretation, Kremlinology. Uh, this week, uh, Donald Trump held a cabinet meeting, as he does periodically, and these are wonderful because everybody sits there and goes, oh, Mr. Trump, your hair looks lovely today, and oh, what a fantastic suit, and then you know, somebody comes in and steams his suit while it's still on his body, and it's the, you know, these... It's a special kind of a scene that we haven't seen since Louis the Fourteenth. So one of the things that Trump did during the middle of this was he mentioned that Mattis was in the room, or this was at some event this week, and he mentioned Mattis was in the room, and he, he was saying, we're making a lot of progress against ISIS, thanks to General Mattis. But no, actually, General Mattis, that's because I'm giving you the power to do all of this. It's really all about me, isn't it? And Mattis then responded <laughs> by saying, our job is to protect the Constitution of the United States. And I was like, yeah. whoa, whoa. <laughs> whoa. And like, nobody yeah. picked this up. And I was like, huh. Well, Mattis has been uh, one of the only people so far who whose reputation has not been hopelessly tarnished by participation in the Trump administration, uh, in part because, uh, I mean, he's pretty consistently, remember that at that embarrassing Trump cabinet meeting early on where, where they went around the room and everybody said things like, oh, Mr. President, it is the greatest privilege of my life to be here and steam your trousers. Um, <laughs> Mattis was one guy then, too, who said it is a great, I think he said something along the lines of it is great privilege to, you know, lead the men and women in the U.S. military. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, and not. He's pretty careful. Um, the thing that is actually kind of astonishing to me uh, about all of that is that he's gotten away with it. Everybody else who has, who has, you know, failed, uh, you know, in the sort of King Lear challenge here has been ousted or publicly humiliated in some way. Um, Mattis does seem to have a sort of magic touch where Trump, you know, seems to be the one person who Trump is not willing to oust or publicly humiliate, uh, which which is interesting. And I'm not quite sure why I'm, I'm, I'm glad of that. Uh, since I think I think he is one of the few, one of the few meaningful restraining influences on the president at this stage, um, but I don't I don't know why. I'm sure there are memos going to the president right now that say, "Mr. President, we in the cabinet have decided you look like you've lost weight." <laughs> you know, or kind of, you know, just anything that's just sort of the most empty kind of flattery. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that we've said we're going to begin to do is the redistribution not of income in our society, although that should start soon, um, uh, but of deep state swag. Uh, and we have begun to solicit, via Twitter, uh, suggestions for mug slogans. And we said we'd pick the five best. I'm not going to read out the exact wording of some of these because it may be tweaked. Um, but 
There were some who suggested we do something in the area of the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, and there will be, and the first new mug says, if found, please return to the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. There were some, of course, who said you're a, an official recipient of the tiara of optimism and an official recipient of the thorny crown of entropy, and there will be mugs made in that. There were some who suggested that we have our cryptic series of numbers that come at the beginning of every episode, um, uh, 9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23, um, which are, by the way, the birthday of my soon-to-be wife as of this weekend, actually. And, and congratulations, thank, yeah, thank you very much. And my two a big, and, a big moment for Deep State Radio and for the Rothkopf family. Thank you very indeed, much. Indeed. And, my, and my and my two daughters. Those are those are with the those birthday those are the the numbers. We'll come up with something crypt more even more cryptic soon. Um and then one person suggested making sense of the nonsense since 2017, and I thought that was pretty strong. So that all, if you did any of those, um, you're going to get a mug. And our man Anthony, Swag Anthony, as we like to refer to him, Swag Anthony, who's the director of the Department of Swag in the Ministry of SNARK, uh, will be sending these out to you next week. And We'll do the same thing next week because we're gonna we're looking at these things and they're gonna be some t-shirts and others. So if you've got a suggestion for a good slogan or good content, uh, and by the way, some of the people who 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 earned them in the past will also get them next week. But if you've got a suggestion for a t-shirt or content or artwork, we're we're having somebody's designing right now an official logo of the Ministry of Snark, you will get something. So send it in to us at hashtag Deep State Radio. Or if you wish, hashtag deep state swag. We'll get it either way, and um, and and you could win a fabulous mug or T-shirt or silo, conceivably at some point in our future. In any event, we are grateful that all of you are out there, and today we're especially grateful for the participation of Evelyn and David and Rosa and everybody. Have a great. Several days until the next episode of Deep State Radio is posted. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.